This is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, the Texas True Crime Podcast. This season, I will be discussing murders from the year 2000 through 2009. Today's story is part two of a female murderer from 2002. If you haven't listened to part one, I would suggest you stop now and listen to that before continuing on with this episode. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 2002. The top song in 2002 was How You Remind Me by Nickelback. The most popular baby names that year were Jacob and Emily. Another thing that happened in 2002, well, you already know. So let's get into part two of the case of Claire Harris. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. While Claire went into hiding, went out on bail, her defense team was working hard to get ready for her case. Her attorney, George Farnham, did an interview with CNN's Paula Zahn, where he hinted at the type of defense he was considering. He stated, who knows what happens to a loving wife obviously a loving mother, a person who wanted to maintain the sanctity of the union with her husband when, unexpectedly, she is confronted with the picture and the reality of the very fine man that she loves in an embrace with another female. They also did research through a mock jury that I went into detail about last episode. This is where y'all got to hear what the mock jurors had to say about Claire and the case. And through that, her attorney was able to figure out how to pick a jury that would be the most beneficial for the defense. Trial consultant Robert Herjorn advised Parnam that the perfect juror would be an empathetic woman, not one who would be jealous or judgmental of other women, and preferably who had been in a relationship where her spouse cheated on her. During the jury selection, taken from an article in the New York Times, Three potential jurors were dismissed for these comments. Any married woman can, one potential juror remarked. Another woman admitted how she had nicked her husband with a truck after discovering him with a mistress years ago. A man said he had been accused of assault when he discovered his wife's infidelity. They ended up with a jury made up of nine women and three men who, during questioning, had expressed to the judge that they could emotionally relate to Clara Harris. January 24, 2003, should have been filled with excitement over making romantic plans for her and David's upcoming 11-year wedding anniversary that was to be on Valentine's Day. Instead, Claire was preparing to come out of seclusion for her court appearance. When that day came, she dressed in an elegant teal pantsuit, still wearing her wedding ring, and while holding back tears, she had to walk through a sea of about 12 photographers on the courthouse steps. Six months after she ran over her husband, Claire was now in the courtroom awaiting her fate. 
which could be one of four outcomes, that she be found guilty of either murder, manslaughter, criminally negligent homicide, or that she be set free. The prosecution started the trial. They went after Claire's demeanor and that through her actions, she meant harm to her husband. A pathologist with the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office testified that being hit and run over by the car caused David to suffer a broken back, ribs, pelvis, and jaw. The talk of the gruesome autopsy photos, which included David's bloody clothes and his bruised and scraped up body, prompted his wife to shake and weep audibly. She sat with her hands over her face, not looking at the photographs, and at one point collapsed in tears on the table in front of her. Jurors were excused, and Harris was escorted from the courtroom. About ten minutes after testimony resumed, Claire Harris broke down again. State District Judge Carol Davies again removed jurors and harshly told Harris she would be removed as well if she couldn't sit quietly. Prosecutors complained Claire Hare's emotional response was distracting jurors from the testimony of pathologist Dwayne Wolfe. We're just not going to have a big show going on, Davies told Harris. After telling the judge she wanted to stay in the courtroom, Harris cried out, It's the first time I've heard what's happening. Defense attorney George Farman quickly cupped his hand over her mouth, and the judge told Harris there would be no more outbursts. Wolf then told jurors David Harris was run over twice, once while he was face down and a second time while he was face up. Prosecutor Mia Magnus asked Wolf if the injuries he documented on David Harris's body were consistent with being run over two separate distinct times. Correct, Wolf replied. Under cross-examination, Wolf admitted he didn't include his opinion that David Harris had been run over twice in his autopsy report. Defense attorney suggested David Harris could have been hit once, carried by the Mercedes, and then rolled over. If that's what the autopsy indicated, I'd be testifying that way, Wolf responded. I don't see this pattern of injuries fitting the scenario you're describing. argument for the defense, Barnham established the core of their case, that Harris had wanted to rescue her marriage and ran over her husband by accident when her actual intention was to ram Gail Bridges' car. They also portrayed Gail as the villain, calling her a homewrecker who enticed and seduced David into a relationship that shouldn't have happened. Barnham said his client had hired a private investigator to track her husband and his lover so that she could prove that Miss Bridges was after David Harris's money. But they did have one big hurdle that could be very detrimental to their case, the infamous videotape. But while analyzing the tape, the defense team believed they could make the argument that she only ran over her husband once. So they hired accident reconstructionist Steve Irwin and they developed the following theory. Harris was intending to ram Bridges' car, and as she rounded the corner, her view was obstructed, and she could not see her husband. By the time she saw him, it was too late to stop, and she hit him by accident. 
lifting his body onto the Mercedes hood. His body then fell to the ground, and the Mercedes ran over him once. Then, the theory went, Harris panicked and locked the wheel to the left, driving around her husband's body in a 40-foot circle, but not hitting him again. The defense's pathology expert said David Harris's injuries were consistent with being run over once. And Irwin constructed a computer simulation designed with using high-tech imagery to recreate car crashes. Steve took more than a thousand precise measurements and used them to create a 3D version of the crime scene. Using the videotape that the private investigator shot, Steve and his team mapped every single frame of the investigator's videotape in a virtual world to show how the Mercedes 40-foot turning radius meant it could not have hit the body a second time. Steve's computer animation allows people to see the parking lot from different angles, views that the original videotape does not show. Farnham was confident before trial, stating, I've always said I thought that video eventually would be the best thing in the world for us. For this wasn't the case, because the defense had a setback when the judge ruled that this computer simulation was inadmissible because it was dramatized. But even without the tape, they believed that Irwin's testimony still managed to make a persuasive case that Harris only ran into her husband once. The next to testify for the prosecution was Lindsay Harris, who was in the car while her stepmother ran over her father. Lindsay had confessed that she had struggled so much after the accident that she tried to commit suicide four times in the months after her father's death. Lindsay said her father had told her that he had been lonely after the birth of the twins because his wife was spending so much time caring for them and that she had begun sleeping in a separate room. Lindsay also stated she was very unhappy about her father's affair and disliked Miss Bridges who flirted openly with her father in his office. But Lindsay also liked that it gave her an opportunity to get closer to her stepmother, whom she had felt distant from after the birth of the twins in 1998. Her father agreed to end the affair on July 24th, but she had had her doubts, so Lindsay accompanied her stepmother that day on the quest to find her husband, who they believed to be with Miss Bridges. She was on a mission to find where he was. She was determined, Lindsay testified. They had tricked her. They had hidden from her, and she was upset by that. Once she figured out where they actually were, Claire called the family's nanny at home and told her to put some of her husband's business clothes on the porch and to throw everything else away. I'm going to hit him, Lindsay quoted Claire Harris as saying as she drove in the parking lot toward David and Miss Bridges. She was very determined that's what was going to happen, Lindsay testified. I said, no. I screamed, no, a bunch of times. She stopped on the accelerator and went for him. She said that she had tried to get out of the car, but that her stepmother was driving too fast. He was really scared, Lindsay said, describing her father as Claire's Mercedes raced toward him. I know that he was trying to get away, and he couldn't. My dad pushed Miss Bridges out of the way before he was hit. Then Claire circled around and ran over him three times. As she listened to her stepdaughter's testimony, 
Claire Harris began crying. This was the second day she was reprimanded by Judge Davies. This time the judge sent the jury out and told her, Either you will sit here in a composed manner or you will be removed from the courtroom. Is that understood? In a whisper, the defendant agreed. Though Clara couldn't contain her emotions through most of the trial, when it was time for Gail's testimony, Clara became stone-faced. Gail's testimony focused on her belief that she wasn't having an affair. She testified that David had told her that he and Claire had an open marriage, which could date other people. Telling jurors she believed this was true since she was told Claire had had a previous affair herself. Bridges said that she did not blame Claire Harris for being angry with her, but she was unaware that David had told his wife that he was going to end the affair. When asked directly, you thought you and David Harris had a future together? Gail responded, yes. The Harris nanny, Maria Gonzalez, who worked for them for the last three years, also testified in the trial. She testified that she received a phone call from Claire Harris on July 24th, in which Harris told her that David was at the hotel with Gail. Claire told Gonzalez to put a week's worth of David's clothes in the oldest suitcase in the house and put it on the doorstep, and to throw the rest of his clothes away. On cross-examination, prosecutor Mia Magnus asked Gonzalez if Claire Harris seemed upset when she made the call. No, Gonzalez said. Was the conversation in a normal voice, Magnus asked? Yes, said Gonzalez. The nanny testified that she had only seen Claire Harris mad twice in the three years she had worked for the family. One of those times was on the morning of July 17th, when David Harris had admitted his affair with Bridges to his wife. Gonzalez said she heard the couple yelling at each other in their bathroom, and that when she went up to check, she saw Claire Harris getting up off the bathroom floor. Next to testify was Diana Sherrill, who worked in the Dental Public Relations Department at the office. She testified that on July 16th, she finally shared her suspicions of the affair with Claire Harris. I told her she needed to protect her marriage, not to ignore anything out of the ordinary. Maybe go to counseling to get help, Diana said. Sometimes men go through change of life, and maybe that's what was happening to David. Claire Harris responded with concern. In cross-examination, attorney Mia Magnus asked questions about the defendant handling anger. My question is, you've never seen her angry? No, came the response. In a quick succession of questions, Magnus asked whether the witness had seen how Harris looked and behaved when angry. You don't know what she's capable of doing when angry? No, the witness acknowledged. You've never seen that side of the defendant? No, the answer came again. By this point, it seemed the prosecution tried to get all the defense witnesses to admit during cross-examination that Claire Harris showed a history of anger, but these tactics didn't work on the witnesses. I would like to introduce you to the Decorum Group, an event and seasonal decorating company based out of San Antonio, Texas. They bring the etiquette of design to your events and decor. 
Celebrations and holidays have a way of bringing people together. The Decorum Group brings the pieces together to cultivate a unique experience for every occasion. You can gather more information on all the social media platforms or at thedecorumgroup.com. Right up until the last moment, the defense was divided over whether Harris should take the stand to defend herself. If she did, there was a risk the prosecution would get the police statement admitted with her potentially incriminating comments about wanting to hurt her husband. If they think she's lying, she's history, her lawyer said, but Claire insisted on testifying. Her testimony is as follows. We were best friends, talking about her 10-year marriage. We were very much in love. Claire became sarcastic, adopting a high-pitched tone to imitate Miss Bridges' voice when it came time to tell of her husband's affair with Gail. She testified that she and her husband sat down in a bar on July 18th to discuss his affair and that she had made notes on a cocktail napkin about their conversation, which was a side-by-side -side comparison that her husband had made of the two women, where he called his wife pretty, smart, and educated, enlisting Miss Bridges as reasonably pretty, smart, and educated. Her husband told her that Miss Bridges communicated with him better and allowed him to do anything. He also stated that Claire was too big, meaning overweight, and too pessimistic. After hearing this, Claire stated, I was doing everything I possibly could to save our marriage. After this, the court recessed for lunch. When stepping outside the courtroom, Mr. Farnham began feeling weak and was helped to the floor as he passed out. He lay on the floor for about 20 minutes before paramedics took him away. George Farnham, 62, was described by his law partner as being under tremendous stress and suffering from the flu. The combination made him lightheaded and he had a fainting spell, which was told to reporters at a hastily arranged news conference. Mr. Farnham, conscious but looking pale, was taken by ambulance to a local hospital where he remained under observation that afternoon. The trial was to resume the next day, a court official said, assuming Mr. Farnham is well enough to continue. On Claire's second day of testimony, she had to go through cross-examination by the prosecution, but she refused to corroborate other witnesses' testimony that she felt raged toward her husband of 10 years. I was extremely upset, Claire Harris said, referring to the moment she saw her husband and Miss Bridges emerging from the elevator in the lobby of the Nassau Bay Hilton Hotel where they were smiling, and Claire had realized the relationship was not over. He was holding Gail's hand the way he used to hold my hand when I was special to him. You weren't angry? asked the prosecutor, disbelief etched into her tone. No, not yet, replied Clara. Switching between being composed and tearful on the witness stand, Claire Harris said that her husband had told her he would never leave her or the children that he did discuss later that he was considering divorcing her. When it came to the point in describing what happened at the hotel, Claire's testimony became increasingly erratic 
and the court session was suspended on three occasions while she composed herself. Once composed, Claire said she had been like in a dream at the time of her husband's death. Claire initially denied most of the statements that the police said she made on the night of her arrest, including her explanation that she was trying to separate Miss Bridges from David Harris when she drove her Mercedes towards them in the parking lot. That was a crazy moment, she said. I had never been through a blackout like that before. Claire Harris said she was simply trying to destroy Miss Bridges' navigator and that she did not know that her husband was standing next to it. But the prosecutor eventually elicited from her an admission that she saw her husband running to the left as the Mercedes bore down on him. Prosecutor, did you hit David with the car? Clara, I didn't see hitting him with the car. I saw him running to the left, and I kept looking at him running. Prosecutor, so you are saying when you first hit him, the initial impact, you're saying it's an accident, despite the fact that you told police that you wanted to separate him from her and that you wanted to hurt him? You are now saying today in this courtroom that it was an accident, despite the statements that you made to the police? Clara, I know it was an accident. All this happened in a fraction of a second, Clara said. I didn't have time to think. I drove over David, she said in tears, adding that she was so disoriented she wasn't aware of being at the wheel of her car. She said she remembered driving around in circles, confused, with no conscious thoughts going through her mind. She said at no point did she intend to kill her husband. The last testimonies in the trial were from Claire's in-laws, Gerald and Mildred Harris, and then eyewitness testimony. Gerald and Mildred, who were actually watching the twins throughout the trial, testified for the defense. Her in-laws also lent 70000 to Claire to help with her legal fees. On the stand, Mildred explained, She's really more like a daughter. I love her very much, while beaming toward her daughter-in-law. David loved Clara very much. In ten years, he never had a negative thing to say about Clara. She also stated that Clara loved David very much. Sometimes, I think she loved him too much. We were like friends. We could talk to each other because we both loved David. In cross-examination, prosecutor said that after the death of her husband, Claire Harris could have kept the twins from seeing their grandparents if the grandparents had chosen not to support her. I don't know what you are trying to get me to say, Miss Harris said, her smile gone, but there is no problem with me getting to see those children. Gerald Harris testified that his son was a good husband and a good father to their young twin boys. He conceded, that David's relationship with Gail was not proper. What David did outside his marriage was a tragic mistake, and what Claire did was a tragic mistake, he said. But these were mistakes made by two of the finest people I know, and if God can forgive us of our sins and our mistakes, then why should we not be able to forgive the sins and mistakes of others? Both in-laws had agreed with Farnham when he suggested that Claire Harris had always been a truthful and law-abiding person. The eyewitness statements were all a little different 
with some saying Clara ran over the body twice, with one even saying four times. But a big blow to the defense came when the prosecution presented a surprise rebuttal witness after the defense rested their case. Farnham said that he was concerned about the damaging police statement and some of the testimony, but he was confident the jury would accept Irwin's testimony that Harris only hit her husband once. But then, on the last day of testimony, the prosecution produced a rebuttal witness who directly contradicted Irwin's theory. The witness, a police accident expert, displayed a crime scene photograph showing a tire mark pointing directly toward David Harris's body, possible evidence that he had been run over more than once. The rebuttal witness was Officer Rolando Sayan, who said that earlier testimony by defense collision reconstructionist Deep Irwin was flawed. Irwin testified the turning radius of Claire Harris's Mercedes-Benz would have made it impossible for her to circle back and hit David. Cyan, who had investigated more than 10,000 collisions over nearly two decades, disagreed. As you make a left-hand turn, sometimes you'll swing out right and it will change the turning radius, Cyan said, explaining how it would have been possible for the car to hit David Harris repeatedly. Separate and distinct bloodstains on the underside of the car showed that David Harris was run over at least two times and possibly more. During cross-examination, the defense attorney said that the Houston police officer wasn't involved in the investigation last summer, hadn't interviewed witnesses on his own, and implied that his only role was to rebut Irwin's testimony. I was called in to assist the district attorney's office, said Cyan, who later stated he only viewed the undercarriage of the Mercedes in photographs. Harris's attorney had argued that the crime happened moments after an emotional and volatile confrontation between Harris, her husband, and his mistress at the same hotel where the couple was married. During his half-hour closing, Farnham also focused on Harris's twin sons and how they need their mother. He pointed out that even David Harris's parents and brother had testified on Clara Harris's behalf. I think that speaks volumes to what this jury should do, Farnham said. Prosecutor Mia Magnus used her rebuttal to try to dismantle arguments for probation. She said Harris's boys would be provided for and they would adjust and survive because that's what children do. She also scoffed at Farnham's statement about keeping the boys with the last parent they have on earth. Well, she ought not be given credit for making herself a single parent, Magnus said. The prosecutor said it was almost offensive to consider that the defendant had suffered too. What about the brutality and violence involved in his death, she asked, going on to describe how Harris lay dying on the pavement, drowning in his own blood while his daughter was watching. The prosecutor lowered her voice to almost a whisper as she made her final points. Doing the right thing doesn't always feel good, she said. And that's the position you're in right now. But I know you will do the right thing. And with that, the jury left to decide if Claire Harris was guilty of intentional murder or acted in sudden passion. In Texas, if she is convicted of intentional murder, 
she could get a minimum of five years or the maximum of 99 years. But if convicted of sudden passion, the minimum is two years with a maximum of 20 years. Claire Harris was found guilty of first-degree murder, and after six hours of deliberation, they decided her sentence. Jurors found that Harris acted with sudden passion, which could have reduced the jurors' recommendation to probation. Instead, the jury said Harris should be fined $10,000 and sentenced to prison for 20 years. Because of the sudden passion ruling, Claire would have to serve half her sentence, 10 years, before she's eligible for parole. Upon hearing the verdict, Claire crumbled to her seat and buried her head in her hands. Claire and David's life started together at the Nassau Bay Hilton Hotel. David's life ended 10 years later at that same hotel. And Claire was sentenced to 20 years on February 14, 2003 which would have been their 11th wedding anniversary. Gerald and Mildred Harris had temporary custody of the four-year-old twins, Brian and Bradley, while Claire's trial was going on. But after learning of her sentence, Claire wanted to go a different route with who she wanted to have watch her children. She wanted to come up with a new custody agreement, one that gave custody to her friends, Pat and Anna Jones. The Jones family also had twin boys the same age, and Clara believed that since I'm not out there, I feel that the twins have to be with a couple that can handle little ones. I know that my situation can last two years, or it can last 10 years. My in-laws are 74, and in 10 years, 84, with two 14-year-olds is not going to be an easy situation. So yes, I am very concerned about my in-laws, Harris said. And since the judge agreed that the original order was flawed because a court-appointed attorney for the Harris twin boys had not been consulted and that Claire Harris had signed it while under a suicide watch at the Harris County Jail Psychiatric Ward, a new custody hearing was allowed. And on May 28, 2003, a joint custody agreement was reached between Clara Harris and Pat and Anna Jones. The grandparents would get visitation rights. Gerald and Mildred Harris smiled as they left the courtroom. I'm happy, Mildred said. But were they happy? This is the point where the relationship between Clara and her in-laws started to sour. Gerald and Mildred filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Clara in 2004. According to the in-law's attorney, immediately after sentencing, Mildred gets handed a note from Clara. It goes from Clara to her housekeeper to Mildred. It says, I'm not giving you custody of the kids. They're going to my neighbors. The first time Mildred ever knows about it is the day Clara is sentenced. Claire Harris's new attorney said her former in-laws decided to file the wrongful death lawsuit after she refused to give them custody of their grandchildren. They were also very upset that Claire was awarded money from their son's estate when it was being divided in Galveston County. 
Gerald Harris stood up and objected to the settlement that gave each of David Harris's three children about $2 million. He said, you're not giving enough money to the kids, the in-law's attorney Howell told jurors. Clara got furious about that. The Galveston County Probate Court awarded Clara Harris about $1.2 million in assets that included a home appraised at $725,330. Claire and David Harris, however, owed $540,000 on the house. She also retained a Lake Livingston home valued at $130,000 and a retirement account. Harris had since sold both homes to pay her legal expenses. Claire's attorney, Dean Blumrosen, stated that Gerald and Mildred Harris disagreed with the probate court because they were furious that they don't get to manage the twins' estate. While waiting for the civil case to go to trial, Claire also sued her former lawyer, George Farnham, in November 2004, saying he made her overpay for his services. Harris says she initially hired Farnham for $75,000. The two, however, did not have a written agreement. Harris said she ended up paying Farnham more than $235,000 over the course of the representation, although he never provided her with any detailed invoices for how the extra money was used. That trial was in February of 2008, and the jurors found that defense attorney George Farnham did not breach his duty to Claire Harris during her 2003 murder trial. In an 11 to 1 vote, jurors also agreed that Harris should pay Farnham $70,250 still owed for expenses from the murder trial and also $389,443 for Farnham's attorney to represent him in this two-week trial. And this wasn't the only civil case she lost. The case her in-laws filed in 2004 went to trial in January of 2007. While sitting in the courtroom, Clara learned they were pursuing a civil case seeking $5 million in damages from their daughter-in-law for the loss of companionship along with the pain and torment their son's death had caused them. Clara Harris's attorney told the court before her testimony that he had advised her to not answer any questions, regardless of their subject to ensure she avoided damaging her chances at overturning the murder conviction. Answering any questions could constitute a waiver of her rights and lead to her being required to answer others, Bloom Rosen said. On the advice of my counsel, I'm going to claim the Fifth Amendment right, a sobbing Claire Harris said in response to scores of heavily baited questions by her in-law's attorney. Gerald Harris testified for several hours that the lawsuit against his former daughter-in-law had nothing to do with forgiveness or revenge, but was about compensating him and his wife for their loss and for ensuring that they would be taken care of financially in their later years, as their son had promised. Asked whether he had forgiven Claire Harris for his son's death, Gerald said, That's a very difficult question to answer. I do not feel that she has ever told us or said to us I killed David, and without repentance, I don't see forgiveness. They won the lawsuit, and Clara was ordered to pay her in-laws 
$3.75 million in damages. Through all of this, Claire also tried to appeal her conviction, but lost yet again when the court upheld her conviction. So now she had to wait until she was eligible for parole in 2012. Claire was a model prisoner. She took a program where she learned Braille and used that to translate school textbooks into Braille. She worked hard not to violate any rules while in prison, so she had the best chance of being paroled to be with her sons again. Claire says that she has explained to the boys that what happened was an accident and that they have forgiven her. Claire is allowed to see her sons for two hours every month, and she says she lives for their visits. Taken from an article in Texas Monthly, Claire was first eligible for parole in 2012, but she was turned down. Over the next five years, she was turned down three more times. Apparently, some members of David's family had written letters to the parole board declaring that Claire didn't deserve mercy that she should at least serve her full 20-year sentence and be released in 2023. But in 2017, Claire got a new parole attorney, Kevin Stowey of San Antonio, and he came up with a new strategy. At her parole hearing that October, he brought her two sons, who were then 19 years old. They said that they had come to the prison every month for the last 15 years, without fail, to visit their mother. The twins did acknowledge that they had lost their father, but at the same time, they had lost their mother, whom they loved deeply. They were victims twice over, they said. This new strategy ended up working because in November of 2017, Claire was granted parole and was set to be released May 11, 2018. Claire was 60 years old at the time of her release. Her parole conditions include no contact with the victim's family. She must reside in Galveston County, find gainful employment, and abstain from drugs and alcohol. She is unable to practice dentistry due to her license being revoked in 2003 and her conviction. But she was offered a job with the Braille company whom she had worked for while in prison. say a huge thank you to Texas Monthly, the Houston Chronicle, the New York Times, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss a male murderer from 2002. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod and on Twitter at crimesofadecade.